0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, March 4th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we are going to present The Protocols of Satan, Part 25. The Jewish International Bankers and the Evils of Global Capitalism. And this program is really sort of an unexpected continuation of last week's program. Of course, I never know what direction I'm going with these programs until I sit down to write them. And that usually doesn't happen until Saturday morning, the day I'm going to present it and publish it. So, unfortunately today, we will not be (laughs) presenting any of the actual protocols but we promised to get to them soon I had planned to get into them in the second half of this program this, that this week when I started typing early this morning and, and I found a chapter from the International Jew what, which I thought would be a valuable contrib- contribution so most of the second half of this program centers around that This program is subtitled The Jewish International Bankers and the Evils of Global Capitalism. We have a, we came across a small booklet of about 54 pages just this morning titled The Jewish System Indicted by the Documentary Record, which was written by a man named Robert Edward Edmondson and published in Manhattan, New York City, or I should say, New York City. On September 15th, 1937, I have documentation from, from, in, in a voluminous tome from the Jews themselves in a book I believe was published in 1919 listing all the Jewish associations in New York City and, and all of the notable Jews. And there were a quarter and a million Jews in New York City in I believe 1918, but it may have been a year or two sooner. It it was an astounding number. It it was um, over a quarter of the population. So I would say that um, Robert Edward Edmondson was a pretty brave character. He gives his full address in this booklet, and we wonder if he was ever visited by the Antifa of his time. But... Even at that time, such a thing was not necessary. Even back at that time in New York, the local government was the Antifa. And in 1937, Edmondson was indicted at the instigation of the Jewish New York City mayor, Fiorello LaGuardia, and yes, LaGuardia was a kike, for allegedly libeling all persons of the Jewish religion. The charges were not true. But Edmondson was being terrorized through the court system. He was later one of the defendants in the Roosevelt administration's great sedition trial in 1944. And he died around the age of 87 in 1959. So it seems that he outlived most of his adversaries. The copy of the booklet which we found at archive.org was preserved by the library of the University of Texas at Austin, from which it was borrowed, according to the library stamps in the back of the book when it was scanned, from which it was borrowed as recently as March eleventh, two 2006. And we were quite, quite surprised that such a book could be found on any university, university library shelf today. Perhaps one day we will discuss both Mr. Edmondson and his career as an anti-Jewish writer in greater detail here. But we are mentioning this here this evening because in this booklet we found an interesting quote attributed to Kaiser Wilhelm II, whom we had discussed somewhat in the last segment of this series on the Protocols of Satan just last week. And this is what it says... The following is from an interview, and, and these are Mr. Edmondson's words. The following is from an interview with former Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany at Dorn Holland, July 2nd, 1922, as reported in the Chicago Tribune of July 3rd, 1922 by Baron Clemens von Radowitz Nye. The Kaiser is convinced, and now they are quoting Baron von radowitz Nye, the Kaiser is convinced that all of the evils of the modern world originate with the Jews. A Jew cannot be a true patriot, he exclaimed. He is something different, like a bad insect. He must be kept apart, out of a place where he can do no mis- where, out of a place where he can do mischief. Even by pogroms, or pogroms, he must be kept apart by pogroms, kept out of the places where he can do mischief. Even by pogroms, if necessary, the Jews are responsible for Bolshevism in Russia, and Germany too, and we must, must remember that over the three years before this was written, over the four years before this was before this was written, before the Kaiser uttered these words. There were several Bolshevik revolutions in Germany. There was a Red Republic in Munich. There were Bolshevik uprisings in many German cities that were put down by the Free Corps. The Jews are responsible for Bolshevism in Russia and Germany too. I was far too indulgent with them during my reign and I bitterly regret the favors I showed to prominent Jewish bankers and businessmen. The former emperor, outside of the quote, but still quoting from the Baron Clemens von Radowitz Nye, the former emperor had a great respect for Dr. Walter Rathenau's ability, but considered him a great danger to Germany. In the first place, Rathenau was a Jew, and the Kaiser has come to the firm conviction that the Jews are at the bottom of most of the troubles in Germany and Europe. And Edmondson then writes in conclusion, in 1937, that Hitler seems to agree with him. I guess he hadn't read Mein Kampf yet. It was not yet released in English. I don't think that happened until at least 1938, and possibly not until 1940, in my estimation, in my memory. I could be wrong. We hope to discuss Walter Rathenau later. A short version of this quote, attributed directly to the Kaiser without admitting that it came through a third party who would be the good baron, appeared in the book, The Secret Behind Communism, by Frank Britton, who also said that it appeared in the Chicago Tribune, but on July 2nd, 1922, which is a day early. The article can be found today on the internet in the Chicago Tribune archives. I checked it and accessed it myself this morning where it appeared in the left-hand column on the front page of the paper under the title kaiser knows he is through friend states meaning baron the the baron who gave the who who gave the interview kaiser knows he is through friend states blames jews for most of ills the Newspaper headline being written in very concise language. And it was continued on page 4 of that day's paper. We would like to reproduce it in full, but the archived format online is very difficult to read since the images are in a very low resolution. So the task would be quite tedious. I have a... um, a link to the Chicago Tribune article in my text for this evening's program, which will be posted at Christoginia this evening. In our last episode of the Protocols of Satan, we ventured to demonstrate that the Jewish and Freemasonic agitation for democracy in Europe that led to the widespread acceptance of that system of government had intended from the beginning that each and every instance of such government would fail regardless of where it was constituted. In the opening part of the protocols, it is clear that the Jewish authors of this document understood this because they knew from the lessons of history how democracy really worked in practice and how easily it could be undermined by whoever held the power of money. Since the Jews had been the masters of the banks and treasuries of Europe, for a thousand years before the fall of feudalism, they were destined to be the masters of the world under the democratic system. During that same episode, we had offered a collection of excerpts from Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf, which explained how and why the democratic process was due to fail was doomed to fail. As we had also endeavored to illustrate that from its very conception democracy as a form of government was founded upon bullshit. It was founded upon rhetorical ability and not on leadership ability. Adolf Hitler understood from his own observation that this is how democracy worked in practice and in part why it was a failure. The other part of Hitler's understanding was that even the rhetoricians were constantly forced to compromise in the implementations of their ideas so that nothing proposed was ever properly executed no matter the value of the initial concept. Now, continuing at Dean, here we offer one more such excerpt from Volume 1, Chapter 11 of Mein Kampf, the chapter which is subtitled Race and People. Hitler had mentioned the Protocols a little earlier in a chapter, and then he also explained the same plot of the Jews which is expressed in the Protocols, which he himself had observed as it came to fruition in the governments of Austria and Germany. And quoting from that chapter of Mein Kampf, Herr Hitler wrote, Attention may be called to the fact that in spite of his proclaimed readiness to make personal sacrifices, the Jew never becomes poor thereby. He has a happy knack of always making both ends meet. Occasionally his benevolence might be compared to the manure Which is not spread over the field merely for the purpose of getting rid of it, but rather with a view to future produce. Anyhow, after a comparatively short period of time, the world was given to know that the Jew had become a general benefactor and philanthropist. What a transformation now this is absolutely true and it is evident to this very day the Jew is a philanthropist only for the purpose of ingratiating himself with people who are influential enough to put him into a position where he may reap many times what he has given and he has given from already ill-gotten riches continuing with Adolf Hitler. What is looked upon as more or less natural when done by other people here became an object of astonishment and even sometimes of admiration because it was considered so unusual in a Jew. That is why he has received more credit for his acts of benevolence than ordinary mortals. And something more The Jew became liberal all of a sudden and began to talk enthusiastically of how human progress must be encouraged. Gradually, he assumed the air of being the herald of a new age. And all of this is evident in accounts of American Jewish philanthropists, such as Moses Michael Hayes, for example a banker and merchant in colonial New England. Hayes was an early benefactor of Harvard College, where Increase Mather and his son Cotton Mather, of Salem Witch Trial fame, had previously taught. While Cotton Mather died shortly before Hayes was born, Mather was an instrumental figure in getting the New England Puritans to lift the restrictions on usury in the first place, which paved the way for Jews such as Moses Hayes to come to the forefront of New England business. There are many other such examples of Jewish so-called philanthropists. Who later gained undue influence over Roman and American, cu- I'm sorry, over European and American culture as they ingratiated themselves with unsuspecting Christians. They have all begun by supporting traditional institutions. The history of Harvard is, to me, the perfect example of this. All these Jews had begun their philanthropy by supporting traditional institutions and then slowly turning them into bastions of liberalism for their own devices. But we digress and we'll continue with Adolf Hitler, where he further discusses the Jewish philanthropist turned liberal herald of progress. And he writes that yet at the same time, He continued to undermine the groundwork of that part of the economic system in which the people have the most practical interest. He bought up stock in the various national undertakings, and thus pushed his influence into the circuit of national production, making this later an object of buying and selling on the stock exchange, or rather what might be called the pawn in the financial game of chess and thus ruining the basis on which personal proprietorship alone is possible. Only with the entrance of the Jew did that feeling of estrangement between employers and employees begin, which led at later date to the political class struggle. And this portrayal by Hitler is perfectly representative of the dichotomy in which the Jews were able to enclose all of Christendom. Their control of capital and the natural way in which they managed their capital and their businesses had caused resentment between them and the working classes, and then they themselves developed and promoted Marxism as the obvious remedy to those divisions by which the working classes would only be more deeply enslaved. But contrary to the belief of many superficial pundits and I saw this as recently as three or four days ago on a white nationalists Facebook page contrary to the belief of many superficial pundits such as him Hitler was not a socialist in the pattern of the Jew Karl Marx that is because Marx was not a true socialist Marx preached a perversion of socialism which advanced the concept of state ownership of capital as an answer to the class division and the oppression of the common worker by the bourgeois, which was the seemingly opposing gang of Jews, but they were really all on the same side, to screw Whitey. Hitler's alternative was personal proprietorship of industry as the answer. In reality, personal proprietorship is how the feudal system had functioned, and the lord who oppressed his serfs and abused his holdings was often forcibly put out of his estate by a more powerful prince or king. But Hitler's concept of personal proprietorship Resemble, I'm sorry, respected the property rights of the individual. While Hitler also understood that ownership of capital by anonymous shareholders in international corporations meant that those responsible for misdeeds were never held personally accountable for them. And also that a nation which allowed such a system to operate within its borders also forfeited a great deal of its sovereignty to those same international corporations. The lesson of our history of the last hundred years if we did only listen to Hitler. Furthermore, while one of the first things that the Jewish Marxists did when they conquered Russia was to open a Rothschild affiliated central bank, Adolf Hitler, being a Christian, believed that interest on loans was immoral, and they forced the capitalist banks, which traditionally create money from nothing, to end the practice of usury in Germany, thereby freeing their entire nation from debt slavery. All the fools that want to know how Hitler funded the Nazi regime should simply understand that he funded it pretty easily by getting rid of the Jews out of the treasury. He still had some Jews working for the Reichsbank, but they couldn't operate their usury scam any longer. Contrary to popular belief, which has been formulated through Jewish propaganda in the Western press, National Socialism is a viable alternative, and the complete opposite, to the Jewish systems of capitalism and Marxism. Continuing with Adolf Hitler, Finally, the Jew gained an increasing influence in all economic undertakings by means of his predominance in the stock exchange. If not the ownership, at least he secured control of the working power of the nation. In order to strengthen his political position, he directed his efforts towards removing the barrier of racial and civic discrimination, which had hitherto hindered his advance at every turn. With characteristic tenacity, he championed the cause of religious tolerance for this purpose, and in the Freemason organization, which had fallen completely into his hands, He found a magnificent weapon which he helped, I'm sorry, which helped him to achieve his needs. Government circles, as well as the higher sections of the political and commercial bourgeois, fell a prey to his plans through his manipulation of the Masonic net, though they themselves did not even suspect what was happening only the people as such or rather the masses were just becoming conscious of their own power and were beginning to use it in the fight for their rights and liberties had hitherto escaped the grip of the jew at least his influence had not yet penetrated to the deeper and wider sections of the people this was unsatisfactory to him the most important phase of his policy was therefore to secure control over the people The Jew realized that in his efforts to reach the position of public despot, he would need a peacemaker, and he thought he could find a peacemaker if he could whip in sufficient extensive sections of the bourgeois. But the Freemasons failed to catch the glove manufacturers and the linen weavers in the frail meshes of their net, and so it became necessary to find a grosser and with all more effective means. Thus, another weapon, besides that of Freemasonry, would have to be secured. This was the press. The Jew exercised all his skill and tenacity in getting a hold of it. And Hitler is speaking of the experience which is peculiar to Germany in the 18th century and not necessarily a good description of the situation in Britain and America or in France. The Jew exercised all his skill and tenacity in getting hold of the press. By means of the press he began gradually to control public life in its entirety. He began to drive it along the road which he had chosen to reach his own ends. For he was now in a position to create and direct that force which, under the name of public opinion, is better known today than it was some decades ago. And of course we had already demonstrated, in part from Adolf Hitler's writing, how the Jewish press doesn't measure public opinion, it creates public opinion. And Hitler continues, Simultaneously, The Jew gave himself the air of thirsting after knowledge. The air meaning the appearance. He landed every phase of progress. He lauded every phase of progress. Particularly those phases which led to the ruin of others. For he judges all progress and development from the standpoint of the advantages which these bring to his own people. When it brings him no such advantages, he is the deadly enemy of enlightenment and hates all culture, which is real culture as such. All the knowledge which he acquires in the schools of others is exploited by him exclusively in the service of his own race. Even more watchfully than before, than ever before, He now stood guard over his Jewish nationality. Though bubbling over with enlightenment, progress, liberty, humanity, etc., his first care was to preserve the racial integrity of his own people. He occasionally bestowed one of his female members on an influential Christian, but the racial stock of his male descendants was always preserved unmixed fundamentally. He poisons the blood of others, but preserves his own blood unadulterated. The Jew scarcely ever marries a Christian girl, but the Christian takes a Jewish to wife the mongrels that are a, a, that I'm sorry the mongrels that are a result of this later union always declare themselves on the jewish side thus a part of the higher nobility in particular became completely degenerate hitler had described elsewhere how the prussian nobility was intermarrying with jews in the 19th century. The Jew was well aware of this fact and systematically used this means of disarming the intellectual leaders of the opposite race. To mask his tactics and fool his victims, he talks of the equality of all men, no matter what their race or color may be, and the simpletons begin to believe him. And we see the pattern all the time since his whole nature still retains too foreign an odor for the broad masses of the people to allow themselves to be caught in his snare. He uses the press to put before the public a picture of himself which is entirely untrue to life but well designed to serve his purpose. In the comic papers, special efforts are made to represent the Jews as an inoffensive little race which, like all others, has its peculiarities. In spite of their manners, which may seem a bit strange, the comic papers present the Jews as fundamentally good-hearted and honorable. Attempts are generally made to make them appear insignificant rather than dangerous. During this phase of his progress, the chief goal of the Jew was the victory of democracy. Or rather, the supreme hegemony of the parliamentary system, which embodies his concept of democracy. This institution harmonizes best with his purposes, for thus the personal element is eliminated, and in its place we have the dunderheaded majority, inefficiency, and, last but by no means least, knavery. The final result must Necessarily, had been the overthrow of the monarchy, which had to happen sooner or later. We just seen how the Chicago Tribune rather gleefully announced the end of the rule of Kaiser Wilhelm II in 1922. Of course, there was a coup by Prince Max of Baden, I think, who led the coup a lot sooner than that, back in 1918. And with this we do not know if we could so concisely write a better synopsis of the expressions and manifestations of the plans expressed in the protocols of the learned elders of Zion up to this point. One example of how the Jews could easily come to dominate the stock market and control the economy and therefore the politics of an entire nation is found in the Wallenberg family of Sweden. We won't really talk about them at length here, but the Wallenbergs would be a good case study, probably for an entire podcast. The Wallenbergs are a family of bankers and corporate raiders who have come to control most all of Sweden's major corporations over the past 50 or so years. Hitler spoke of how they could have control without having ownership and that is very possible because the Wallenbergs and I read this years ago in an article published in the Wall Street Journal that I looked for online in time for this podcast and I couldn't find it this morning I couldn't find it it's got to be there somewhere though There were just a a slew of articles and mentions of the Wallenbergs in the Wall Street Journal. The article I'm thinking of is probably from about 15 to 18 years ago. That explained how the Wallenbergs, through holdings of only 8 to 10% of the shares of many large corporations... Through that, they have manipulated control of the boards of directors of companies like ABB Group, Ericsson, Volvo, Electrolux, SKF, which was a ball-bearing manufacturer. And SKF was selling ball-bearings to National Socialist Germany during World War II. Husqvarna, Saab and other companies and the Wallenbergs control these companies with a minor portion of the shares in their ownership and these companies represent over 50% of the total stock market valuation of all companies in Sweden understanding that it should be no wonder why Jews such as Barbara Lerner Specter, who is funded by the Wallenbergs, are so successful in promoting their agendas of immigration, multiculturalism, and race mixing in Sweden. But another Jewish family which also fits the description of capitalists, who have turned to politics and became destructive forces within a nation, is that of the Jew Walter Rathenau, who we saw mentioned in our earlier quote from Kaiser Wilhelm II. Another family are the Warburgs, who we will speak of this evening from Henry Ford's The International Jew. Rathenau, back to Walter Rathenau, Rathenau was assassinated in 1922, but his death was far too late for for the good Kaiser's Germany. From the article on Rathenau, found in the Encyclopedia Britannica, we shall repeat this article in its entirety, because it's rather brief. Walter Rathenau was born in Berlin in Prussia, or in Germany later, in 1867. He was an industrialist, he, he's listed as a German-Jewish statesman, an industrialist and a philosopher, who organized Germany's economy on a war footing during World War One, And after the war, as Minister of Reconstruction and Foreign Minister, was instrumental in beginning reparations payments under the Treaty of Versailles obligations and in breaking Germany's diplomatic isolation. Now, if we look at Wikipedia, and I didn't really include it in the notes here because I couldn't find a better source in the short time I had. If we look at Wikipedia, Wikipedia admits that Rathenau was actually a good friend of Colonel Edward House, Edward Mandelhouse. The, well, I believe he was the Rothschild controller of Woodrow Wilson. And I think I mentioned that a little later this evening. And I believe that House probably orchestrated the Jewish bait and switch that was pulled on Kaiser Wilhelm. Because Wilson's 14 points are a very fair peace pact between England, or represented a very fair offer of peace between England, France, America, and Germany, where it was never enforced. And it should have been enforced because it was the word of the American president, and the American president is the only power after the war which had the immediate military ability to insist that any treaty be enforced. So Wilson's 14 points should have been enforced by any honorable measure. But Colonel Mandelhaus, Edward Mandelhouse, was at Versailles and Wilson's 14 points were never enforced. Versailles was a Collection of Jew robber Jewish robber barons who just sought to loot and pillage Germany. And these remarks are sort of off the cuff. Mandelhaus was also a good friend of this Rathenau's, who was a cabinet minister for the Kaiser, and more than happy to start forking over reparations payments to the victors at Versailles so he was a sellout but he was a Jew so we should expect that. Rathenau was the son of Emil Rathenau, the founder of the immense algamine electrostats gesselschaft Combine. He studied philosophy, physics, chemistry and engineering at Berlin and Strasbourg and received his doctorate in 1889. He subsequently held a number of executive positions in German industry, and at the outbreak of World War I, headed the AEG, his father's conglomerate. One of the few German industrialists who realized that governmental direction of the nation's economic resources would be necessary for victory, Rathenau convinced the government of the need for a war raw materials department in the war ministry as its head from august 1914 to the spring of 1915 he ensured the conservation and distribution of raw materials essential to the war effort he thus played a crucial part in germany's efforts to maintain its economic production in the face of the tightening british naval blockade he then returned to business and writing but when the collapse of the Western Front became imminent in the autumn of nineteen eighteen, he proposed a desperate levy and mass or call to arms to turn defeat into victory. After the war, Rathenau helped found the middle class German Democratic Party. He became a war hawk after the battle was lost, in other words. After the war, Rathenau helped to found the middle-class German Democratic Party and advocated a policy of cooperation with the Social Democratic Party of Germany. Convinced that the days of unrestricted capitalism were over, he advocated in his book The New Economy in 1918, industrial self-government combined with employee participation and effective state control rather than the wholesale nationalization of industry by the state. In other words, he was selling Germany a canard because it was his proposal or Marx. That was it. That was the two choices there. Rathenau combined democratic convictions and a strong belief in international cooperation with economic experience and a knowledge of foreign countries. He entered the government of Karl Joseph Wirth in May 1921 as a minister of reconstruction. Sounds familiar. And in that post, he initially advocated a policy of fulfillment of Germany's obligations under the Treaty of Versailles. ...as part of a general European reconstruction scheme. So he was a German carpetbagger. That's the way I see it. He he was facilitating the carpetbaggers who would loot and pillage Germany after the war. On January 31st, 1922... I'm sorry, he was a Jewish carpetbagger of Germany... ...if I wanted to be more precise on January 31st 1922 he became foreign minister although Western oriented on April 16th 1922 and this was publicly considered anathema in the West on April 16th 1922 he negotiated with the Soviet Union the Treaty of Rapallo which re-established normal relations and strengthened economic ties between the two countries that had been outcast from the concert of European powers. This affronted the Western allies, who had that pretext of alienation from the Soviet Jews. Since it marked the first time since the war's end that Germany had asserted its position as an independent agent in international affairs. Despite this diplomatic success, which was hailed by many Germans, Rathenau was increasingly reviled at home. To the extreme right, I would say he was probably hailed by many German Jews, to the extreme right he represented the whole German post-war system, which they hated. And he was also, as author of the Treaty of Rapallo, the promoter of creeping communism. The extreme nationalists' hatred of him was intensified by his being Jewish. Rathenau was assassinated on his way to his office by right-wing fanatics. His collected works were published in 1918. Now, this brief article omits a lot of important data concerning Rathenau. But leaves us a skeleton of understanding. While it assesses him as being friendly to private possession of capital, it also makes him out to be what he may be called, what, what may be called a fascist, where it discusses his advocacy of state control of that capital. But he also seems to be offering Germany a canard, keeping Germany in a dichotomy between two unwise choices, which is state-controlled Jewish capitalism or Marxism. We believe that Britannica has represented Rathenau's philosophy quite poorly. They were too kind to him. And the manner in which he paved the way for conciliation with Marxist Soviet Jews betrays that assessment. In a chapter of the International Jew, titled Germany's Reaction Against the Jew, discussing how organized Jewry has the Jewish advantage in finance and was dominating the German economy for the worse, Henry Ford says the following about Rathenau. While these influences, this is very early in the book, while these influences were undermining the mass of the people, Higher influences of Jewish origin were operating upon the government. The advisors of the bethmann Halweg government were the great ship magnate Balin, a Jew, Theodor Wolff of the Berliner Tageblatt, and member of the Pan-Jewish Press, von Gwinner, director of the German bank who was connected by marriage with the great Jew bankers, the Spires, and Rathenau, the leader of Jewish industrial financial activities. These men were at the source of things and were bending the government as the other influences were bending the people. And by other influences, Ford was talking about wartime subterfuge perpetrated by the Jewish press and manipulation of the food supply and food prices conducted by Jewish speculators, among other things. (coughs) Because it describes quite well the manner in which Jewish capital would come to rule over democracy through plutocracy, here we are going to present a chapter from The International Jew, which also discusses the activities of Walter Rathenau. This also very well portrays the immediate dangers to Western civilization, which were imposed by Jewish control of capital and their ability to transcend national borders through stock exchanges and supranational banks and their cronyism in the synagogues how Jewish international finance functions and the article starts with a quote from george petullo printed in the saturday evening post which ford also discusses at the end of the chapter and i'm attributing this to henry ford even though we understand that it may well have been written by some of his editors at the dearborn independent he's the only one that gets the credit for it because he signed his name to the book George Petullo wrote in the Saturday Evening Post, I gather sometime recently to the publication of this article, we're not told, such has been the development of international bankers that they can no longer be regarded in their professional capacity as the nationals of any country. Entitled to do business under their own government supervision exclusively, They are really world citizens with worldwide interests and as such ought to be made amenable to some form of supranational control. In other words, he, George Petullo, is advocating a one-world banking system and a one-world government because these bankers are just too big for any one nation and they can't be checked. And that's bullshit. That's not that, That's the wrong way to remedy this. The right way would just be to have that Holocaust we've all been waiting for. I'm being sarcastic, but that's the truth. Not only, Henry Ford says, not only did the Jewish financial firm of Kuhn Loeb & Company use farsighted prudence in splitting its political support, one Warburg supporting Wilson, another Warburg supporting Taft, And an unnamed member of the firm supporting Roosevelt, all, meaning Teddy Roosevelt, all at one time, as Paul M. Warburg testified, but split it, but it split its activities, meaning the financial firm and its heads, split its activities in several other ways also. So they were covering all of their bases politically. The international interests of the Jews comprising this firm are worthy of note. The influence which forced the United States to repudiate a commercial treaty with Russia, while Russia was a friendly country, 1911, and thus to compel all business between the United States and Russia to pass through German-Jewish hands, was generated by Jacob Schiff. Russia seems to have been the country on which He chose to focus his activities. The full story is told in the Dearborn Independent of January fifteenth, 1921. Under the title, Taft Once Tried to Resist the Jews and Failed, and is reprinted in Volume 2 of the booklet containing this series. And of course, that's another chapter in The International Jew. Mr. Schiff's activity consisted in forcing the Congress of the United States to do a thing that was repugnant to the reason and conscience of President Taft, and which he personally refused to do or to recommend. Mr. Schiff left the White House in great anger with the threat, this means war, so Taft should have had him shot on the spot. It did not mean as much war as it might have for President Taft acquiesced gracefully in the Jewish victory and has since been extremely laudatory of them on the public platform. So we see the end of Mr. Taft. Mr. Schiff's firm also helped finance the Japanese war against Russia and in return desired Japan as a Jewish ally. The wily Japs however saw the game, and kept their relations with Mr. Schiff to purely business matters. Which fact is well worth bearing in mind when reading the widespread propaganda for war with Japan? If you will give particular attention, you will observe the same interests which are now just engaged in the most loudly defending the Jew, are the most active in spreading anti-Japanese sentiments in this country. So the Jews crying that we had to defend Jews were the same Jews crying that we had to have war with the Japanese. The Japanese war with Russia, however, enabled Mr. Schiff to advance his plan to undermine the Russian Empire, as it has now been accomplished by Jewish Bolshevism. With funds provided by him, the basic principles of what is now known as Bolshevism were sown among the Russian prisoners of war in Japan who were sent back as apostles of destruction, then followed the horrible murder of Nicholas Romanov, Tsar of Russia, with his wife, his crippled son, and his young daughters, the full tale of which has now been told by the Jew who managed the crime. This story has always been called into question, but the Romanovs were never found after. For the part he played in destroying Russia, Mr. Schiff was wildly hailed in New York the night the news came that the emperor had abdicated. Meanwhile, the Jew who was to take the jar- czar's job, as the common New York ghetto phrase ran weeks before the event, had left New York to be in waiting. This Jew was passed out of the United States at the request of a very high American Personage, whose subservience to the Jews was one of the marvels of the past seven years. Halted by the British, this Jew was released from their toils as the request of a very high American personage, and thus the Jewish Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, the program of which was made in America, was set in operation without a hitch now we may be wrong but Ford seems to be referring to Edward Mandelhaus the Rothschild agent who was planted in the control of the Wilson administration we can only guess but Ford continues and he says this whole firm is in German Jewish this whole firm is German Jewish its members having originated in Germany it had German connections how far it maintained those connections through all subsequent events is a separate question. And, of course, he's talking about kuhn and Company. Mr. Otto Kahn's allotted portion of the world seems to be Great Britain and France. Mr. Kahn is of German origin, like the rest of the firm but he has not publicly shown such concern for Germany as have the other members. Mr. Schiff was once very active for the settlement of a peace on the basis of a victorious Germany. Mr. Paul M. Warburg also had interests, discussion of which is postponed for the present. Ford speaks of them later in the book, I believe. Or in his chapter. He does speak of some of them in his chapter. But Mr. Kahn succeeded through the connivance of American authority and the excessive repression of the newspapers in conveying the impression that by some species of occult separatism he was not German-minded. And Ford may be simply referring to the later half of this chapter which discusses the Warburgs at length but I believe there are several chapters in the book which discuss the war words. Therefore, Mr. Khan flits lightly everywhere, except Germany. He is sufficiently French to be able to tell in the first column on the first page of Le Martin on what terms America will do business with Europe. And he speaks as one having authority. He is sufficiently British to have thought of standing for the British Parliament when an unfortunate event made it necessary for him to remain in the United States. Mr. Khan sometimes flits farther east into the more Jewish portions of Europe, and his comings and goings are marked by certain changes with which his name remains most ostentatiously disconnected. Mr. Khan has very recently been telling France on what terms the United States will help her. There apparently being no other spokesman, Mr. Khan's word is accepted as authority. France is one of the most Judaized countries in the world. The haunt of international Jewish financiers who exercise their power, thus saving France the trouble of passing laws to keep the emigrant Jew out of France so that France presents the spectacle of being Judaized by Jewish finance and not by immigrant Semitic hordes and is thus a platform from which Mr. Otto Hermann Kahn may utter his pronouncements and we see that today those same Jews of international Jewish finance have overrun France with Muslims in return for France's kindness to the Jews in his last declaration to France Mr. Kahn prepares her to expect little by stating that America is a country of immense resources, but the actual money which the people have at their disposal is comparatively limited. True enough, it was a member of Mr. Kahn's firm who invented a monetary system which was promised to keep money in more equal relation to wealth. And that's a reference to Warburg and the Federal Reserve. But as he goes on telling what America will and will not do, the American people knowing nothing about it, meanwhile, Mr. Khan discovers with great enthusiasm a place where he thinks American capital can be placed, namely, in the development of the vast and immensely rich colonial empire of France. In other words, places like Haiti. And pray, where is that? And of course, Ford is thinking of Syria. And pray, where is that? Any Frenchman would tell you now, in Syria, Syria, that part of the East where the natives are loudly complaining that the Jews are driving them out, contrary to every written and moral law. The Jewish powers have already succeeded in getting French troops over there. Bad blood has been caused between France and Great Britain. The Jews on both sides are playing for the middle. And here is Mr. Otto Khan himself pledging an American capital, pledging American capital to the development of the French colonial empire. Talk to any Syrian who knows his country's present status and he will interpret Mr. Khan's words very vividly. And therefore we see that even today's actions in Syria by the Americans on behalf of the Israelis is the continuation of a hundred-year-old policy. It started before the 1920s and it wasn't made possible until the First World War when the Levant was wrested from the control of the Ottoman Empire. Ford continues one of the nicest bits of work mister Kahn has done is to denounce pro-german propaganda which he says has exasperated americans in favor of france next to committing the united states to an undying admiration for briand this is really his finest bit especially with partner paul meaning warburg Playing the German symph- Sympathy Spring, Sympathy String, I'm sorry, playing the German Sympathy String. It is a great international orchestra, this Jewish financial firm. It can play the Star Spangled Banner, Die Wacht Am Rhein, the Marseille, and God Save the King, in one harmonious rendering, paying obsequious attention to the prejudices of each. In other words, it could lead America, Germany, France, and Britain around by the noses. Paul Warburg was instrumental in the formation of the Federal Reserve and was a member of its board of directors when it was created. His brother Felix was also a prominent banker. His brother Max remained a prominent banker in Germany. And was not only an advisor to Wilhelm II during the First World War, one of those Germans that, one of those Jews that Kaiser Wilhelm had later complained about being too kind to, but also sat on the board of the Reichsbank from 1933 and during the first years of the Nationalist Socialist Government in Germany. Max moved to America in 1938. Ford continues, next come the Warburgs, their interest is, of course, in Germany, in other words, Ford is saying that Kahn, the banker with Kuhn Loeb and Company, operated in England and France, but wasn't permitted to operate in Germany, that wasn't his turf, so to speak, that was the Warburgs turf. Paul stated in his testimony, given at the beginning of the world war, that he had interests in Hamburg and would dispose of them. The war came on. The Jewish government in the United States was augmented. Mr. Warburg was no mean figure, as previous articles have shown. The Warburgs are three in number. Felix M. is the other one in America. He appears but slightly in public affairs although he is a member of the American Jewish Committee and of the firm of kuhn & Company. His retiring habit, however, does not argue lack of consequence. He was of sufficient consequence, Jewishly, to have bestowed upon him a sort of honorary rabbinical degree of Haber, which entitles him to be known as Haber Rabbi Baruch ben Moshe. He is the only Jew in America upon whom the title has ever been conferred. Max Warburg represents the family in its native land. Max Warburg had as much to do with the German war government as his family and financial colleagues in America had to do with the United States war government. As has been recounted in the press the world over the brother from America and the brother from Germany both met at Paris as government representatives in determining the peace meaning that they were both at Versailles there were so many Jews in the German delegation that it was known by the term kosher also as the Warburg delegation and there were so many Jews in the American delegation that the delegates from the minor countries of Europe looked upon the United States as a Jewish country which, through unheard-of generosity, had elected a non-Jew as its president. And, of course, other notable so-called Americans at Versailles were Edward House and Bernard Baruch. Max Warburg is an interesting character, also as regards the establishment of Bolshevism in Russia. The Jews had several objectives in the war, and one of them was to get Russia. And you know something, now that I remember, Louis Marshall was also at Versailles. The Jews had several objectives in the war, and one of them was to get Russia. To this end, the German Jews worked very assiduously Because Russia was a member of the Allies, the work of German Jews was made the easier. But the fact that Russia was an ally made no difference with the Jews who were resident in Allied countries. Win or lose, Russia must be destroyed. It is the testimony of history that it was not so much the German military prowess as the Jewish intrigue that accomplished the downfall of that empire in this work Max Warburg was a factor his bank is noted in a dispatch published by the United States government as being one from which funds were forwarded to Trotsky for use in destroying Russia always against Russia not for German reasons but for Jewish reasons which in this particular instance coincided Warburg and Trotsky against Russia Poor John Spargo, who ought to know better, and I don't know how Ford said he ought to know better, but that's okay, denies all this, while every American who comes back from Russia, even those who went over there pro-Bolshevik, yes, and returned Jews themselves, proclaim it. John Spargo was an American Marxist, supposedly supposedly a methodist from england who resettled in vermont to us he has decidedly jewish physical characteristics including that typical and very wiry vi- very wiry almost negro like hair we call it a jufro He was an earlier biographer of Karl Marx, and active. he was active in the Socialist Party of America in the early 20th century. Ford is saying he ought to know better, but maybe from Spargo's viewpoint, he didn't want to know better. Continuing with Henry Ford, the crushing fact is that Bolshevism is not only Jewish in Russia and in America. But it is Jewish in the higher regions of Jewry, where better things ought to exist. And Ford is giving the Jews way too much credit there. Take Walter Rathenau, a German Jew on the Plain of the Warburgs. In other words, he's in the same class. Rathenau was the inventor of the Bolshevik system of centralization of industry, material, and money. So the Encyclopedia Britannica said that Rathenau promoted an alternative to Marxism where Rathenau developed the way Marxism was practiced in the Soviet Union. I don't know how he could be an alternative to it. It was just a canard, as we had said before. The Soviet government asked Rathenau directly for the plans and received them directly from him. Max Warburg's bank held the money. Walter Rathenau's mind held the plans, which makes it a pertinent question. If Bolshevism can be so Jewish outside of Russia, what hinders it being Jewish inside of Russia? And of course, this is being written in 1921, I believe, so it still wasn't popular knowledge that Bolsheviks were Jews and Jews were Bolsheviks. Except perhaps amongst the Jews themselves. And Ford continues it is a most significant fact that as in washington the most constant and privileged visitors to the white house were jews so in berlin the only private telephone wire to the kaiser was owned by walter Rathenau. not even the crown prince could reach the kaiser except through the ordinary telephone connections it was the same in london it was the same in paris it was the same in petrograd in russia which so persecuted the race that controlled it then and controls it now. Now this sketchy outline of the internationalism of the firm of Kuhn Loeb & Company is not offered as the result of keen research for the facts are found on the very surface of the matter for anyone to see. What is revealed by research is this, whether Mr. Schiff's interest in Russia had underground features which affected the welfare of nations. Whether Mr. Kahn's flitting missions here and there, which he made with great freedom during the war, were wholly taken up with the business announced in the public notices. And whether Mr. Warburg, whose interest in Germany has not abated, to judge from his recent utterances, was able to retain complete neutrality of mind during the war. These are questions of value. Obviously, they are not easy to answer but they can be answered so we see that Jewry was an international crime ring they were acting as an international crime ring with interests over and above every country that was a participant in a war yet each of those countries allowed the Jews to operate in which they did each of the governments of every one of those countries Knowing what the Jews were up to. In collusion with each other. Brothers who were at the heads of banks in each respective nation. Who were colluding with one another during the war. That's just nuts. Evidently the world was fighting against each other. At the behest of the Jews. There should be no doubt. In hindsight. And they're still doing the same thing today. They're still still doing the same thing in all of the wars and other tragic events of modern history. Ford goes on to say, "It was a family enterprise. This international campaign. Jacob Schiff Schiff swore to destroy Russia. Paul Warburg was his brother-in-law. Felix Warburg." was his son-in-law, Max Warburg of Hamburg, banker of the Bolsheviks, was thus the brother-in-law to Jacob Schiff's wife and daughter. And of course, I'm sure they all had each other's nieces and nephews, just like Herod, (laughs) Herod Antipas and all of his relations were doing. As a digression, according to an article titled The Bolsheviki, who they are and what they believe, which appeared in a pro-business publication called The World's Work in October of 1918. The Warburgs were operating nefariously in Russia even before the Bolshevik Revolution. In that article, whose author was purposely anonymous, having pointed the fingers directly at the Jews from New York, we read under the subtitle The Able Bolshevist Propagandists and we will read one paragraph from the Bolsheviki who they are and what they believe Pollock and Gorovich, the identical agents who originally arranged the conference between Max Warburg the Kaiser's financial henchman and Porto Popov, the Vice President of the Duma in the Russian Congress, right? when these two attempted to cook up a surrender in November 1916, they were there with Levinson and Olaf Augsburg selling stock and mines and supplies of every description to the Germans. They were also receiving cash from them. The whole business went through Augsburg's bank. The Neobanken as the whole world now knows. I saw the German, the original German orders, including a telegram from a concern in Hamburg, a step in a negotiation for the taking over of one of Russia's largest steamship companies. I tell this as a sidelight I obtained upon Trotsky's personal associations. All of this, he's saying, of course, is well known. It was probably well known in certain circles in Russia and in Germany. Continuing with Henry Ford. Speaking of the far-sighted manner in which the House of Kuhn Loeb and Company disposes itself over world affairs, there is also the curious fact that in this Jewish firm is one who goes to a Christian church, a most heinous thing for a Jew to do. Split three ways in American politics, and as many ways as international matters require, we find this firm split two ways with regard to religion. Mr. Khan professes, at least, attends a Christian church, and is accounted an adherent of it. Yet, he is not ostracized. His name is not taboo. The Jews do not curse him. He is not denounced as a renegade. The Jews have not buried him out of mind, as they do others who desert the faith. This presents a strange situation when it is considered. Not to recount again the horror and reprehension and active antagonism with which Jews view such a desertion suffice it to say that there is no greater marvel than that of jacob schiff retaining in the firm of kuhn loeb and company a renegade jew he could not have done it every fiber of his intensely jewish nature would have rebelled against it yet there it is without going further into this ingenious system of covering all vital points from one center enough has been said to show One busy Jewish financial firm with which political matters, national and international, is almost a profession. The family of Warburg, high in the controlling group of two countries, and enemy countries at that. The family of Warburg, high in the negotiations of world peace, and the discussions of the League of Nations. The family of Warburg, now advising the world from both sides of the earth, what to do next. It was probably with more reason than the general public surmised that a New York paper printed the peace conference during the peace conference an article headed, Watch the Warburgs (coughs) in reference to Versailles once again. The fact seems to be that, as Mr. Petullo is quoted as saying at the head of this article the international financiers have been so engrossed in world money that the sense of national responsibility sometimes becomes blurred in their minds and of course we would say that the Jews never had national responsibility they only have responsibility to Jews they desire everything war negotiations and peace to be conducted in such a way as to react favorably on the money market for that is their market money which is what they buy and sell and because money has no fixed price it is a market which offers the widest opportunity for the trickster and swindler one cannot play such tricks with stone or corn or metals but with money as the commodity everything is possible Mr. Warburg is already very much interested about the treatment to be accorded foreign securities in the next war. Readers of the daily newspapers may recall that recently a demand was made for the gold in the Reichsbank, which was resisted on the ground that the Reichsbank, although the Central Bank of Germany, was really a private concern just as Paul Warburg said it was and just as he has insisted that our own Federal Reserve System should be and which it is there is far-sighted wisdom in that with a view to possible defeat in war Mr. Warburg is apparently quite disapproving of the treatment accorded alien enemy property by some countries he quotes a French banker throughout nationality is not stated And drives home his point. The French banker used as an illustration a possible war between England and France. This was only lasting a year. I'm sorry, this was only last year. I guess it's only last year, the year before this article was written, that the French banker made this illustration and said that the bankers in each country would proceed to withdraw their mutual balances and securities for fear of confiscation and that such a course would precipitate a panic to which mr warburg adds in other words war is a business that should not interfere with the conduct of business that's the point there to which mr warburg adds i think that our bankers ought carefully to study this very serious question we have nothing to gain and much to lose by joining in the policy of disregarding the rights of private property. We shall probably, in the course of time, become the largest owners of foreign securities and properties, which would become endangered in case we were drawn into war. To me, however, it is of greater interest that nothing to be done that might stand in the way of making the United States the gold-reserved country of the world. Such talk passes with too little scrutiny. It bears a strong reflection of recent events which should not be overlooked. Moreover, it presents a grandois vision, which is supposed to command instant agreement because of its appeal to superficial national pride and self-ambition, selfish ambition if what mr Warburg says is an intimation that the international jews are planning to move their money market to the united states it is safe to say that the united states does not want it well henry ford lost on that point we have the warning of history as to what this would mean it is meant that in turn Spain, Venice, Great Britain or Germany received the blame and suspicion of the world for what the Jewish financiers have done. It is a most important consideration that most of the national animosities that exist today arose out of resentment against what the Jewish money power did under the camouflage of national names. The British did this, The Germans did this, when it was the international Jew who did it, the nations being the marked, nothing but the marked spaces on his checkerboard. And that's a very good analogy of what's gone on. Today around the world, the blaming word is heard. The United States did this. If it were not for the United States, the world would be in better shape. The Americans are a sordid, greedy, cruel people. We hear this to this very day. Why? Because the Jewish money power is largely centered here and is making money out of both our immunity and Europe's distress, playing one against the other. And because so many of the so-called American businessmen abroad today are not Americans at all, they are Jews. And in many cases, as misrepresentative of their own race as they are of the Americans. The United States does not want the transfer of all Juden to this soil. We do not desire to stand as a gold god above the nations. We would serve the nations and we would protect them, but we would do both in the basis of real values, not in the name or under the sign of gold. On the one hand, Mr. Warburg recites pitiful facts about Germany in order to raise sympathy for her and on the other hand he stimulates the gold lust of the united states the plight of germany is entirely due to the forces from which the united states has only narrowly escaped and to hearken to international jewish plans for the rehabilitation of germany is to be in danger of approving plans which will fasten jewish domination more strongly on that unhappy country than it is now germany has paid dearly for her jews the warburg voice that speaks for her would seem indeed to be the voice of jacob but the hand that proposes financial dealings is that of esau and with an in- adherent of the british israel variety of christian identity william cameron sitting as the editor of the dearborn independent it is possible that ford was aware of the Edomite nature of modern Jewry, although his persistent identification of the Jews with both Israel and Judah is often confusing, and we've spoken about this here, discussing Henry Ford in the past. So he may not have known with certainty that today's Jews act in such a manner because they are indeed the progeny of Esau, but certainly not of Jacob. Ford continues, The internationalism of the Warburgs is no longer in doubt and cannot be denied. I don't know how it could have ever been denied. Felix Warburg hung on to the Hamburg connection longer than did Paul, but the breakage of either was probably perfunctory. At the same time that Felix left the Hamburg firm of his brother Max. A Mr. Stern also left the Frankfurt Firm and both became very active on the Ally side. The Frankfurt Firm of Stern. I'm not sure exactly what Firm Ford means by that. Taking sides against the German nation as lustily as anyone could. Impossible, say those who fancy that a German Jew is a German not at all impossible the jews loyalty is to the jewish nation and what the jew himself refers to as his cover nationality may count or not as he himself elects and ford should have realized that just a little sooner <laughs> well, when he was speaking about how the jews had a or should have had a sense of national responsibility, just two pages up. This statement is always met with frothing wrath by the Jews' Gentile fronts in the purchased pro-Jewish press. But here is an example. Do you remember the Beast of Berlin, that lurid piece of war propaganda? You did not, perhaps, know that its producer was a German Jew, Karl Lamele. His Karl Lehmle, I guess. His German birth did not prevent him making money out of this film, and his film does not prevent him annually going back in state to his birthplace. This year he goes accompanied by Abe Stern, his treasurer, Lee Kalmar, his director, and Harry Reichenbach, a list of names duplicable in any movie group. In other words, able to be duplicated. Carl Lamela or Lamele, was an early Hollywood Jew who started in the Nickelodeon business with a company that was soon thereafter organized into Universal Pictures. He was one of those Jews whom Thomas Edison had sued for patent infringement for refusing to pay royalties on filmmaking equipment which he had, which Edison had developed Another film a, another film which seems to have anti-german propaganda is the 1918 silent film The Heart of Humanity which depicted a Prussian officer terrorizing a Red Cross nurse in France during the Great War. It was clearly an another piece of anti-German wartime propaganda. Continuing with Ford, many of um, Universal's offerings at the time were cheap monster movies and stuff like that. Continuing with Ford, Messieurs Stern and Warburg of, Ham, of Frankfurt and Hamburg, respectively, and away from home perhaps only temporarily, were not concerned about the fate of the Huns, but they were immensely concerned about the fate of Jewish money power in Germany. And of course the term Hun in this context was a slur which the Jews concocted as propaganda against the Germans. To indicate how blind the public has been to the inner allied Jewish character of much of the world's important international financial activity, note this from the Living Age earlier in the year. And he's quoting another periodical, I gather. According to the Svensk Handelstidning, the recent American loan of $5 million to Norway was really the outcome of an agreement between the Hamburg firm of Warburg & Company and the New York bankers, Kuhn & Loeb. It is regarded as a significant sign of the times that a German firm should be responsible for an American loan to a neutral country. The conditions subject to which this money was borrowed are not regarded as very favorable to Norway. And no market effect on the rate of exchange between the two countries has followed. And Ford says, Note, in the light of all the statements made about kuhn Loben Company, and the Warburgs in particular, the assumption in the above quotation that the transaction was really between a German and an American firm. It was principally an arrangement between the Warburgs themselves in family council but the loan will pass in Norway as an American loan and the fact that the terms of the loan are not regarded as very favorable to Norway will react upon Scandinavian opinion of this country it goes without saying that no market effect on the rate of exchange between the two countries has followed for that would not be the object of such a loan the dislocation of exchange is not unprofitable it would be the most interesting to know in how far Kuhn-Lobbe company has endeavored to readjust the rate of exchange. During the war, Kuhn-Lobbe company made a loan to the city of Paris. Considerable German comment was occasioned by this, naturally, and it is very well worthy of record that in the city of Hamburg, where Max Warburg does business, the chief of police issued this order, and he quotes, Further mentioned, in the press of loans made by the firm of Kuhn Loeb and company to the city of Paris and unfavorable comments thereon are forbidden. The following story is vouched for as reliable and if in one or two minor details it does not represent the exact fact it is a trustworthy illustration of how certain things were done. A Jewish international banking corporation bought up the mining and other similar concessions of Jugoslavia. And consequently, the policy pushed at the peace conference was that which was most convenient for that group. An understanding on the flume question was in progress between Wilson and Nitti. Certain concessions had been agreed upon and Wilson was willing to negotiate. When Oscar Strauss and one of the Warburgs appeared on the scene, Wilson changed his attitude overnight and afterward insisted on the Yugoslavia solution of the problem. The way in which concessions had been bought through that territory was a disgrace, and observers expected that it would play an important part at the peace conference. Still referring to Versailles. The financiers are not the only international Jews in the world. The revolutionary Jews, of all countries and none, are international also. They have seized upon the idea of Christian internationalism, which means amity between nations, and have used it as a weapon with which to weaken nationality. This is the method of what we call the Antifa, in all nations. This is a communist method which they still employ today. They know as well as anyone that there could be no internationalism except on the basis of strong nationalism, but they count on cover words to advance their plans. Enough transpired between the lower and higher Jewish groups of every large center during the war to render it imperative that Jewry confess, repent, and repudiate the madness that has ruled it, or else boldly assert and espouse it before the world. Certainly enough has transpired to render it desirable that the American people look again into the purposes of those Jews who were instrumental in reorganizing our financial system at the most critical time in the world's history. Max Warburg was apparently strong enough to suppress German discussion of his brother's activity in America. The Warburgs at present, resident in America must suffer it therefore that American comment may be as full as need be. And that was published in a Dearborn Independent issue of July 21st, I'm sorry, of July 9th, 1921. And Henry Ford ended his commentary very idealistically, which is typical. That concludes our presentation from the International Jew. Getting back to Walter Rathenau, he is not mentioned at all in Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf, but there is an interesting mention of him in Dr. F.K. Wiebe's booklet Germany and a Jewish Problem where it says the 19th century was thus dominated by the tenet of the emancipation and assimilation of the Jews it was considered best not even to mention the Jewish question, and to act as if such a question did not exist. In the countries of Western Europe, the Jews themselves were animated by an intense desire for assimilation. Conversions and mixed marriages were the principal means employed by the Jews for acquiring, in the words of Heinrich Heine, himself a Jew, an admission ticket to European culture, and thereby acquiring a preponderating influence in political, cultural, and economic life. It should be added that a number of Jews were inspired by a sincere desire to throw off their skin and obliterate as far as possible their hereditary tracts. The process of assimilation, or... <laughs> the growth of the wheat and the tares, the process of assimilation reached its culminating point in the first three decades of the 20th century, during which Israel became king of the western world. But it cannot reasonably, it cannot be reasonably doubted that this epoch has come to an end. The most farsighted among the Jews had clearly perceived the inevitability of a reaction. Forty years ago, a leading German Jew, Dr. Walter Rathenau, and this is harkening back to a time before the Great War, before World War One. Dr. Walter Rathenau, in a book entitled "Hora Israel," H-O-R-E, Hor, uh, I guess it kind of matches. "Hora Israel" had criticized the policy of assimilation and uttered a warning for the benefit of those of his co races who occupied, or were about to occupy, prominent positions in Germany. They apparently do not even dream, wrote Rathenau, that only in an epoch which all the forces of nature are artificially enchained, can they be protected against that which their fathers endured. Although their fathers were certainly not Israelites. So, it seems that Rathenau is really talking about the medieval pogroms. So in Rathenau's own writings, we see the truth of Hitler's words where he wrote that even more watchfully than ever before, he, meaning the Jew, now stood guard over his Jewish nationality. Though bubbling over with enlightenment, progress, liberty, humanity, etc., his first care was to preserve the racial integrity of his own people. He occasionally bestowed one of his female members on an influential Christian, but the racial stock of his male descendants was always preserved unmixed fundamentally. We don't necessarily agree with Hitler's assessment, but it must reflect his experience in Germany. It doesn't reflect my experience in New Jersey. He poisons the blood of others, and of course that does but preserves his own blood unadulterated. The Jew scarcely ever marries a Christian girl but the Christian takes a Jewish to wife. The mongrels that are a result of this later union always declare themselves on the Jewish side. Like I said that may have been Hitler's experience in Germany it hasn't been my experience in New Jersey and New York. But more importantly Adolf Hitler placed a great deal of the blame for the loss of the Great War on the actions of the trade unions who failed to properly mediate the fractured relations between the industrialists and the workers, a class division which we have already described here as being the cause of Jewish capitalists that was exploited by Jewish Marxists. In Volume 1, Chapter 12 of Mein Kampf, which is subtitled The First Stage in the Development of the German Nationalist-Socialist Labor Party, Hitler said the following, and I quote, In the field of national economics, whatever concessions are granted today to the employees are negligible when compared with the benefit to be reaped by the whole nation, if such concessions contribute to bring back the masses of the people once more to the bosom of their own nation. Nothing but meanness and short-sightedness, which are characteristics that unfortunately are only too prevalent among our employers, could prevent people from recognizing that in the long run, no economic improvement and therefore no rise in profits are possible unless internal solidarity be restored among the bulk of the people who make up our nation. If the German trade unions had defended the interests of the working classes uncompromisingly during the war, meaning World War I, if even during the war they had used the weapon of the strike to force the industrialists, who were greedy for higher dividends to grant the demands of the workers for whom the unions acted. If at the same time they had stood up as good Germans for the defense of the nation as stoutly as for their own claims, and if they had given to their country what was their country's due, then the war would never have been lost how ludicrously insignificant would all, and even the greatest, economic concession have been in the face of the tremendous importance of such a victory. But Walter Rathenau was certainly one of those industrialists, and one of the more notable, who would be at least partly responsible for this situation which hitler has described and as we have seen he was also in charge of germany of of german wartime materials procurement so a deeper investigation of his role may be instructive but we will not do that here this nevertheless will help us step into the next subject as we commence with our discussion of the protocols in the near future i believe on march 18th two weeks from now and and that has to do with the oppression of labor in the rise of the industrial period the industrial revolution if you will that'll be all for this evening praise yahweh the god of israel but not of the jews and good night Mm
1: -hmm. Don't you know that I love you in a garb of a feet of Don't you know that i will always been true? Oh, won't you?